It is Monday, May 11th. We are studying 2 Peter. We are in 2 Peter chapter 2, and we've reached verse 11, which breaks into the middle of a sentence, but let's look at the passage together. It says here, this was the conclusion of all of those ifs and conditional statements about what God has done in the past, and the examples should be sufficient for us to say, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment. So he knows how to rescue, and he knows how to punish. That's the picture here from the Old Testament. Especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, and that's what we saw in the past. And we're going to see something here about authority in the middle of verse 10. We dealt with that in two sessions. We talked about that being the paragraph division, even though it's the middle of a verse. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme, talk less of something that's greater than what they're talking about it like. The glorious ones, this phrase regarding angels, okay? Whereas angels themselves, right? We're talking about the, the angels here, the glorious ones, that they are blaspheming. Whereas angels, though great, this is our verse for today, though greater in might and power, greater than who? Greater than us, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them, who's the them, that's the glorious ones, before the Lord. I mean, the Lord is watching, he's watching their hearts, he's watching their attitudes, and we know that even the angels recognize power, and they speak in light of that power, and they are not, as we saw last time, those willful and bold, arrogant, think that they have no concerns at all about authority over them. All of that is a picture of what we're trying to avoid. And it is the example and characteristic of the false teachers. Now, more next time, tomorrow, on these other things in verse number 12. But let's deal with this a little bit. And you'll say, well, we kind of dealt with that, didn't we? Well, let's think about it a little more clearly, just in terms of what we're dealing with in the text. And, and there is some review here. But this idea of pronouncing blasphemous judgments against them, against these angels, uh, bad angels in this case, uh, pronouncing blasphemous judgments. Now remember, this is the idea of something that relates not just to blaspheming something sacred. Something sacred is greater than the thing that, or, or the way that we're describing it, uh, but even bad things. In this case, demons, if they're powerful. It's like you wouldn't talk to a thug in a back alley as though he were just a schoolyard kid, right? You, you would have to respect even the bad guys. That's the picture here of uh, these people pronouncing these things, which says more about them and their arrogance than it does uh, really about those that they're speaking to or against. So let's just understand this in light of where we've been, right? Verse number 10, especially those who indulge in the Lust of defiling passion, bold and willful, they don't tremble, they have no qualms about speaking less of the glorious ones. Now the picture in Jude, which is this parallel passage that we've talked about, gives us a sense of a pronouncement of blasphemy, in other words, that we're thinking less or they're speaking less of something that is greater. And the picture is that of Michael, Michael the archangel. This is a high-ranking angel contending with the devil, who we learned in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 is uh, uh, this, this high-ranking angel himself. Apparently, in a strange scene, they were disputing about the body of Moses, so they're having a conflict here and a difference of directional focus and idea and what they wanted. And in that conflict, uh, he, that is Michael, did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. 
But instead, in light of the Lord, understanding the greatest power is there, he prays, the Lord rebuke you. That's the picture. So the idea of this deference and humility is what we need to see. And this is the picture here, even though there's no discussion of Michael. The idea is people, as we've seen, making these kinds of statements. And again, I just throw some things on the screen here to show you that this is not just some ancient practice. This is the kind of thing that we see all the time. Uh, moving God, and we should add this pronoun here, when I move God and bind Satan. Right now I'm doing it by, and of course there's always an instrumentality that they claim by the blood of the covenant, but they certainly teach this kind of thing. Uh, what you bind should never loose. These ideas of loosening and binding, these concepts of ordering things around and rebuking the enemy, we've seen this. Well, here is the picture in the ancient church of the same kinds of uh, very bold and and, and willful statements being made against uh, spiritual enemies. And that is something that is as current as uh, your latest YouTube search on how to deal with the spiritual warfare that takes place in our lives. Is there spiritual warfare? Absolutely. Are there spiritual powers? Yes, there are, uh, both good and evil, and those are spiritual powers that need to be understood, but in our passage, they need to be respected. And uh, we don't just pretend that we have some derived authority that allows us to rebuke and to bind and to uh, do the kinds of things that uh, are so often um, arrogantly uh, bandied about in false teaching circles. And again, if this were done by the average biblical teacher, that would be one thing. But as it's said here in Jude and Second Peter, this is one of the characteristics of false teaching. And you can look at the teaching of those who make this their practice and see plenty of things that show us they fall in the category of, uh, of aberrant teaching. So I thought it would be helpful as we think through this passage because it does bring up a topic that we should explore a little bit and that's the idea of angels because they're described here as greater in might and power uh, this comparative here greater has to do with comparing them with us greater in might, might and power some passages just to kind of settle this in our minds and nail this down uh, might be starting with psalm 8 verse 3. Uh, here's the psalmist says when i look to your heavens and we're talking here about um, space right this, I talk about Shemayim in Hebrew, the uh, sky up above where the birds fly, uh, heaven where the heavens, where the stars and moon hang out here. That's the picture here, the celestial bodies. Uh, and then there's the third heaven, as Paul put it, where God lives. There's three ways that the word heavens is used, even in ancient uh, or Old English, we use that that way. We don't do it much anymore, except I suppose in poetic language. Anyway, when I look, the psalmist says, uh, up to the sky, up into space, especially at night, that's the picture here, moon and stars that you've set in place. Uh, here's the reflection. What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Talking here about us, the children of mankind, or the, the uh, descendants of, of Adam. Why would you even look to us? Yet, here's the confession in the God-breathed Psalter, in the Psalms, yet you've made him, right, that is people, man, son of man, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Here's the picture of angelic beings, and again, it, it just matches perfectly with what we're seeing here, that angels, as a class of beings, are greater in might and power. There should be a respect, whether they're good angels or whether they're evil angels, we should have a proper respect that the only one that outranks them uh, as a class is the uncreated creator of all things, the triune God. Uh, you've made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned us with glory and honor. 
You've given him, of course, speaking in the third person about man and the son of man, you've given him dominion, leadership, management over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all things here on earth, the material world in which we live. So the idea of who angels are, good reminder of where we are in the pecking order, which is what this is all about. In the pecking order of God's creation, uh, human beings are less in power and less in might than the angelic class. What are angels? I think it's good for us to think this through a little bit more uh, comprehensively. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's a quotation, by the way, of Psalm uh, 110, verse 1. Uh, are not all, and again, they, are they not all, we're speaking here of the angels, ministering spirits. They serve. They're servants. Servant spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So talking here about the ministering servants, that is the adjective that describes them. That means we're talking about obedient ministering servants. They're spirits, rather. They are um, the good angels in this case, those that did not fall and rebel against God. And they are sent to serve. Well, they're spirits. They don't have material bodies. They're not created in the material order. They're uh, beings, just like we are, only we are enmeshed or encased in human flesh, and they are not. Uh, the interesting thing about being less than the angels, as we are, we saw that from Psalm 8, and in our passage, we're not as great in might or power. But when you think of redemption, we might not be as powerful, we may not be as high-ranking in terms of our might and power. Those are the two things mentioned here. Uh, but when it comes to God's redemptive plan, for surely it is not angels that Christ helps, that God in his redemptive plan helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham, which again is a great way to put it theologically, that we trust in God. That is the mark of those who are saved and redeemed, like Abraham trusted God back there in Genesis 15, or 22, uh, the picture of his sacrifice of Isaac, the idea of trusting God and doing as he says. And we are the offspring of Abraham. We trust in the God of Abraham. And because of that, uh, he gives us that redemptive help. That's the context of Hebrews chapter 2. Well, it's not angels. So he kind of bypassed the angels in that regard. First Peter chapter 1, in the first letter that Peter wrote, he talks about our salvation, which again is what this is all about. The help is the salvation Christ has provided us. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or uh, time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Here's the phrase I want to get to, things into which angels long to look. This is an interesting thing because we know that the redemptive help is not given to angels. It's as though, though they outrank us in power and might, God looks at the less than human beings and he saves them. He brings them this salvation and the prophets recognize that they were looking forward to a time that wasn't in their lifetime. They realized that, and the angels, even in the product of the prophecies, were trying to figure this out. They longed, look, they wanted to, 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 to see it. And we often just fill in the blanks there in our imagination that they marveled at the fact that God would bypass redemption for angels. Surely they were friends, if you will, with the fallen angels at one time, and uh, there was no redemption. And yet here we are, an alienated class of enmeshed beings with body and spirit, and uh, God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save them. So 
that may help when we think through the distinction. Look here at the screen between angels and people. We're both made in the image of God. We're both limited in the fact that we're created beings. We're not eternal. We're dependent on God, right? Were it not for God, we wouldn't exist and we couldn't continue to exist. We've been given abilities and responsibilities. They're different, uh, certainly in scope and power, and we're all accountable. God will judge us just as he has judged and will ultimately judge demons. But when it comes to the distinction here, let's look at this. Angels are spirit. We are spirit and a body. Uh, angels are invisible. You can't see them, but people obviously are visible because we're encased in these bodies. Angels, just for the sake of complete you know, disclosure, what we know in Scripture, they don't reproduce. There's no more angels than were created at one time, and yet we are able to procreate. We have new human beings every single day in this world. Angels never die, and they never cease to exist. Well, we don't either, but we do have this thing called physical death. We separate from our bodies, which is a good thing in the end because we get a glorified body back. And here's what I'm getting to. I want to show you that the distinction being made in our passage today is that angels have superior attributes, and yet we in Scripture have a superior value, which is an amazing thing to contemplate and a great thing for us to remember as we think through the difference between angels and human beings. That's a great, great thing. Uh, so I hope that as we see a passage like this and know that there are many people who think less of angels, perhaps because we are the object of the redemption that God brought us in Christ, there ought to be a humility and the Bible's always telling us to be humble. We looked at that passage last week in 1 Peter 5, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and to know that He is going to exalt us at the proper time. We realize that our prayers are given in real deference to God, not as though there's any inherent power in us. When you see people with Bibles in their hands and podiums uh, commanding and rebuking and binding angels in a way that shows that they have this sense of entitlement in their own life, that is a sure sign of the false teachers, one that we don't. Don't advocate or adhere to, and we want to remember, as this text says, uh, that even angels themselves, if they look at other angels, high-ranking angels, higher ranking than them, they're not going to pronounce some kind of blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, because they always live with that great sense that they are under the Lord's purview and sovereignty, and so are we. Good sign and a good distinction, I suppose, are the characteristics that helps us understand maybe a little bit more thoroughly uh, the characteristics of false teachers. And this is where we're going in our passage to make sure that we can identify them and, of course, avoid them and to be certain of God's coming judgment on them. So thanks for tuning in today to our study. Tomorrow, Tuesday, we're back with more in Second Peter, and uh, we're going to continue through this book just as long as we can and uh, in this unique format. Be sure to comment if you would. That's a good thing and a helpful thing. And be sure to subscribe and like the videos that you're watching and whatever format you get this in, be sure to continue on in your study with us through Second Peter.